that now was the answer to answers that you gave later. She did the things that we both did before now, but who forgave her? Now you see how down you've fallen. Now you hear your conscience call. Thank yourself alone for stalling. I'm not there to call. Call me a fool, cause I need her and see her, but now. Something inside you will tell you I'm wise to what you're spreading around. If I could stand to see her crying, I would tell her not to care. When she hears of all your lying, she will join you there. Today on the Art Support, we've got more Push Festival coverage because the Push uh, Festival has begun as of yesterday officially. Uh, plus, we have a report on the arts funding situation in BC. We have an interview on a, a show, a one-man show playing at the Colch called Agukwe, and uh, we'll have Grandmar the Wizard. He will grace us with his presence. So uh, stay with us. Welcome to the Arts Report for January the 19th here on CITR 101.9 FM and also streaming online at citr.ca and, of course, available in podcast form for generations to come into the future. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Janusz, or as George Strombolopoulos says, I am your boyfriend, Adam Janusz. And uh, on today's show, we have more uh, Push Festival coverage. Uh, as I said at the top, the festival has begun as of yesterday. Uh, that was the that was the opening, and uh, the opening show was La Marea, which we covered on last week's uh, program. That's the one where they took, take over a city block and do small little uh, performances all over the block. And you, as an audience member, just walk around and experience all the different pieces as you uh, as you walk. Um, anywho, we've got three more uh, plays to tell you about, shows, plays, events, yada yada, from Push, including Terminal City Soundscape, City of Dreams, and Gloria's Cause. And uh, as well as all the Push fun, we will have a report on the arts funding uh, situation. There was uh, massive arts cuts um, in 2009, and that uh, devastated the arts community, a lot of festivals and uh, arts companies uh, in the province um, have been suffering. And so now, a year and a half later, where do we find ourselves? So we'll have uh, a report on that as well. We'll get the scoop on Agukwe, a one-man show about, uh, about uh, love on the res, gay love on the res. 
and that's playing at the Cult. And we also have a very, very fortunate um, occurrence. We're very lucky to have Grandmar the Wizard, a representative from the Electronica band The Wizards, uh, who will be playing at uh, the Forum uh, tomorrow, and uh, we'll have an interview with Grandmar himself. So we are very lucky, and uh, really the show is uh, quite enchanted to, uh, to have him. Um, all right, so we should just get started, because uh, we probably, I'm telling you now, we won't make it in one hour. Uh, I'm just telling you now. So... Um, be prepared to stay uh, stay over time because it's going to be great. Um, all right. So, Music on Main presents pioneering concert music, and Vancouver Magazine has called it one of the city's most valuable alt high culture providers. Quote unquote. Artistic director David Pay is now curating a unique musical and visual experience called Terminal City Soundscape. And that begins on Sunday, January 23rd at the Heritage Hall as part of the Push Festival. Here's David explaining what this project is all about. is an exploration of the music that has happened in the city over the last sort of 40 years and what I think, what the, the four mainstreams of music that I think are, of non-commercial music, that are important for Vancouver and globally when people look at Vancouver, what they think of about Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we're not talking about Sarah McLaughlin or Brian Adams. You know, we're not talking about the... Um, the very famous commercial artists who've emerged from the city. You mean not, uh, uh, oh, okay, and not Justin Bieber? Although no, he's not no really not Justin Bieber, <laughs> but, you know, he's from Stratford on Air Hill. Oh, that's so. why, only because yeah, of I'm, That's right, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the non-commercial music from Stratford, Ontario, but um, with Terminal City Soundscape, so we're looking at four main streams of music that come mm. out of it. The first is Soundscape, and I'm going to come back to that in a second because it's part of the title. Um, the second is intercultural music, so music that's not that uh, uses instruments and ideas from around the world uh, and mixes them up, kind of like fusion cuisine in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third is free improvisation, and that improvisation isn't like Ella Fitzgerald scatting. Mm-hmm. It's um, kind of more out there, and the idea behind it is when musicians use spontaneity to kind of express their own freedom and their own agency, and then when they work together in ensembles, instead of having a conductor leading them, they're using the spontaneity to express their individuality, but also to sort of say hierarchy isn't important. It's more how to act as equal that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a different it's a different kind of improv. And um, there's also an aesthetic of beauty that I think is really important in the city as well. And I don't mean people just writing music that they're trying to make sound pretty, mm-hmm. but rather people who through their music are interrogating the very idea of what is beautiful. Right. Um, you know, and I think that that comes out of just living in such a geographically beautiful place. Mm-hmm. You know, when you catch glimpses of the mountains, it's it's kind of inspiring. You know, when you see our beautiful trees and buds in you know late January, yeah. <laughs> it's inspiring. <laughs> um, so. So it's these ideas of soundscape, interculturality, uh, free improv, and beauty that we're exploring through this concert. Hmm. So um, soundscape uh, is a term that is pretty familiar to a lot of people. You know, somebody will be like, oh, the soundscape, if they're talking about something in a film or this or that. Well, soundscape as a word actually was invented in the early 70s in Vancouver really? by R. Murray Schaefer. Yeah, it was. It's, so it's, it's actually a Vancouver phenomenon, or at least it, it originated here. And 
the early 70s, in 74, there was the Vancouver Soundscape Project, where Marie Schaefer and people like Barry Truax and Hildegard Westerkamp and many other composers started to record the urban world and the natural world, and then would organize those recordings and those sounds into music that would get played through speakers. So um, that, when I travel, I, I get to travel for music on Maine quite a bit and um, go to Holland and uh, go to the States. And when people talk about Vancouver, those people who are familiar with contemporary music are really familiar with this idea of soundscape because, of course, it's now all over the world. People are doing this kind of work. Right. Um, but there are two pieces that are really, really, really important in that soundscape work. There's all the documentation that went on as part of the Vancouver Soundscape Project and then the World Soundscape Project in the 90s and later. And these two works that emerged in the 80s, one is called Kitts Beach Soundwalk, and that's by Hildegard Westerkamp. And she went down to Kitts Beach, and you hear her voice telling you what she's doing, and she starts to play you the sound of the barnacles, so those barnacles lapping at the water. Mm -hmm. And she starts to show how through recorded sound we think that maybe we're just documenting something, but like a photograph, you know, you choose what you're going to photograph, and so she shows a little bit how recording can be fiction. And she turns the city, the sounds of the city up by changing the uh, EQ on the monitor, and then she turns the sound of the city off. And, and then she starts to talk about dreams, and it becomes this magical, magical piece that starts off at Kids Beach and then goes into a kind of dream world at the end. Hmm. And so that's how we're starting the concert, is with this very, very important work from Vancouver. Um, and then in the middle of the concert is Barry Truax's River Run, which again is based on um, recorded sound and breaking down sound and looking at sort of the physics of the sound and reinterpreting them in a way and broadcasting them through eight speakers so you've got this octophonic sound. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, those I think are the two most important pieces that have actually ever emerged from Vancouver, the most influential pieces. Um, again, not in a Justin Bieber kind of way, <laughs> but in, in, uh, in these small artistic circles that have um, you know, developed into a larger movement. Hmm. So I'm, I'm super psyched for that. The concert ends. Uh, we have three short concerts. So it's, um, like it's one evening, and there are three short sets, and each set takes place on the hour, and then the bars open in between, and we get to hear some of the soundscape music. Excellent. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a fun party mm -hmm. where you get to discover some of the music that makes Vancouver tick. And that was David Pay of Music on Main, who will be presenting Terminal City Soundscape, and uh, that will be at Heritage Hall on Main Street. And that's from January the 23rd to the 25th, and tickets are $29, and they can be uh, ascertained, they can be reached, they can be purchased, they can be linked to from the PUSH website, which is pushfestival.ca, or from our website right now at citr.ca, where uh, the latest Arts Report blog post has links to all of the features that we have today um, and has all the ticket info and links uh, for you to get tickets. It also has last week's uh, podcast, so if you want to get the scoop on uh, PUSH events that we covered last week and uh, the week before, you can access that from citr.ca as well. Now, this year's Push Festival is celebrating Vancouver's 125th birthday, and what could be more fitting than to build a model of our fair city out of found objects? That's what London artist Peter Reeder will be doing at the Roundhouse Community Centre starting January the 25th in a show called City of Dreams.
It's been done in London, Germany, Singapore, and Australia. And with all this city-focused creative exploration, I asked if Peter Reeder believes a city is more than a landmass uh, or a collection of people or buildings, but almost a being unto itself. Here's what he had to say. Now, working as you do um, on the topic of, uh, of of city and sort of uh, civic identity, mm. I I'm guessing that you see the city as more than just a location and more than just a collection of individuals. You see it as sort of a, an entity unto itself. Is that right? I guess so. I mean, I think as soon as you start to try and pin down what what the identity of a, of a town is, um, you know, you run into the problem of of trying to, you know, acknowledge how diverse opinion might be. You know, I think, you know, if you asked a uh, uh, hundred people in Vancouver what they felt about it, I'm sure there'd, there'd be areas of, of sort of overlap, but probably lots of disagreement. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very hard to sort of essentialize a place and just say this is what it is or this is what it means. And uh, so you know, aware of that uh, difficulty, really. But I think I am very interested in what people share about a place. I think it's very easy to. Um, focus on, on difference mm -hmm. to, to the degree, degree where you sort of start to lose sight that actually there is quite a lot of sort of communality uh, that probably is necessary to make any place work. You know, there has to be some sort of shared feelings about things somewhere. Do you think that there's an element of uh, not seeing the forest from the trees that people, you know, just... Well, it uh, could be, couldn't it? I think, you know, there can mm -hmm. be danger of becoming a bit sort of atomized in your own sort of community or, you know, in your own sort of social you know, milieu, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, so take us through a little bit of what, uh, of how you explore uh, these issues, some of the different uh, forms. Well, in this particular show, I mean, it's a very, very simple idea. You know, this began as a sort of educational project in London uh, quite a number of years ago where I was working with um, a bunch of fairly disaffected teenagers in a sort of London suburb. And one of the reasons the piece came into being is that they were very, very sort of negative in their views of London mm -hmm. and, but you know talking to them a bit you know it was very clear that they they knew only a very limited side of it they sort of tended to know the the suburb they lived in and a couple of sort of central bits of London you know they kind of had quite a limited sense of the place mm -hmm. and then I, I just wanted to do something to try and open their eyes to you know other aspects of it and try and you know hopefully get them to feel a sense of of, of ownership of the whole town mm. so that was behind it but but what we did really in the end was a very simple thing of trying to represent London through a sort of a, a large number of found objects and making a kind of map of the city uh, and you know a small audience watch this thing sort of unfold and it was like a, a kind of ceremony or a ritual mm -hmm. about celebrating the city and yeah. really that's the the core idea that we've brought now to other towns you know did this a number of times in London um, you know it's been elsewhere but the, but the basic idea is always the same. Now, I wonder for the audience, the, for that aspect, because I can understand for the people uh, who are in, who are putting together these found yeah. objects, but I wonder what, what, what have you been noticing about uh, the reactions of the audience, or, or what, what are people sort of uh, well, feeling? Well, I think it's an unusual experience, because it's, it's relatively slow and sort of meditative. You know, it's not mm -hmm. a highly dramatic thing to watch. It's sort of, it slowly unfolds. There are moments of sort of drama in it, I suppose, but it's it's not like watching a sort of high-energy performance. Mm -hmm. And I think what, what I felt, you know, what a big compliment I feel is, uh, you know, people have said that it allows you a lot of space to think your own thoughts about this city. So, you know, we're, we're showing something which we hope provokes a lot of thinking about your, your own position in it. Mm 
Hmm. Um, and people have often shared stories afterwards about, you know, where they grew up, what their own, you know, experience was in the place. So, you know, I think that's a lovely thing that it's it's not just um, presenting a view. It's a sort of creating a space where you know everybody can share what they think. And that's Peter Reeder, uh, who's bringing City of Dreams to the Roundhouse Community Center from January the 25th until the 29th. And tickets range from $28 to $34, depending on uh, certain variables, which you can find out on the PUSH website, which is pushfestival.ca. And you'll find City of Dreams under main shows, or you can just go to citr.ca and get uh, the links for this show and all the other features we have on uh, today's uh, show, which will uh, include, after we take a break, um, an update on the Arts Cuts situation facing BC artists, and as well as an interview with the Wizards, which are playing a show tomorrow at the Forum on Granville Street. Uh, so stay with us. We'll be right back. Theatre at UBC is proud to present Dead Man's Cell Phone by Sarah Rule. Dead Man's Cell Phone tells the story of Jean, a woman whose life is irrevocably changed after picking up an unstirring stranger's incessantly ringing device. For our heroine, this wake-up call takes her on a date with the deceased's brother, a drinking binge with his wife, and a mysterious rendezvous with his mistress. Coupled with trips to the afterlife and an international black market, this beguiling modern adventure hilariously proves that life is for the living. Dead Man's Cell Phone plays from January 20th to the 29th at the TELUS Studio Theatre in the Chan Centre on UBC campus. Showtime is 7.30pm. For tickets and more information, visit theatre.ubc.ca or call 604-822-2678. All right, we're back on the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM, and that show that you just heard about, uh, Dead Man's Cell Phone, uh, we'll have an interview with a uh, star of that show, Titch Wilson, and uh, she'll give us the scoop later on in the program. Um, I should also add that our fine uh, show today is being sponsored by the UBC Arts Undergraduate Society, who represents arts students on academic issues, provides student services, and hosts social events. Visit aus.ubc.ca to check out what AUS has to offer, such as locker rentals, conf uh, conference uh, subsidies, excuse me, uh, club involvement, and volunteer opportunities. They are also on Twitter and Facebook. Check them out at twitter.com slash ubcaus and facebook.com slash ubcaus. All right. Now, cognitive dissonance is the uncomfortable feeling caused by holding conflicting ideas simultaneously. Gloria's Cause is an experimental rock musical which explores the cognitive dissonance in American history and peels back the layers of the American Revolution to uncover the inequity, inequality, and injustice hiding under the proud mythology of the Founding Fathers. Seattle artist Dana Hansen is the creator of this quote-unquote dance-driven rock treatment and I asked her to give us a sense of what this all looks and feels like. Well, it's loud and um, there's a, an original rock score um, that, you know, is one of the driving forces. There's also a lot of dance. Um, the, both the dance 
and the music are, are eclectic. And so the piece is changing um, tone and texture throughout and, and kind of um, starts a bit quietly and kind of gets louder and louder and uh, more intense over the course of an hour and 15 minutes. So it builds and it builds until it sort of explodes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I say yeah. that? <laughs> and um, now the, the, the topic of the show is the American Revolution. And um, now tell me a bit about this warped, it's, it's going to feature warped replays of iconic moments. What does that mean? Well, in, in America, we tend to grow up with kind of a cartoon version of the history of this country. As yeah. we grow up, whether it's in textbooks or um, after school television. Um, and, and so we're, we're kind of taking a look at some of the things that, you know, some of the iconic moments that, that are distilled down and kind of handed to us as we're growing up. And, and then these, it, that's kind of what we retain as adults by and large. Of course, there are a lot of very literate, you know, um, American history scholars, but I'm mm -hmm. kind of talking about the popular views yeah. of of moments like, for example, the Declaration of Independence. And, and, and so we have a kind of neat and tidy cartoon version um, of that event collectively. But what we've done, you know, with that example is to kind of go under the surface a bit more and, and also to just use our imaginations and, and knowing that it wasn't as, that there was a lot more ambiguity and a lot more uncertainty and confusion about that particular document and the timing of it and the wording of it mm -hmm. and the intent of it, um, we've we've kind of taken some liberties with um, with those elements of uncertainty, ambiguity, um, and also in inequality, inequity, right? That that's sort of a, a major theme that um, that reality wasn't as um, as you know free and just as it as it's made out to be. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's really at the core of the work um, and so as we look at these iconic moments and try to try to come up with something that that you know represents a little bit more of a subtle nuanced look that's that's what we're trying to uncover is is um, you know essentially we don't have a, a perfectly just society by any stretch of the imagination today and that, that was really the inspiration for us to go and look back at that time and to look at the, those inequities and, and the roots of them yeah. at a time when, you know, it was, it was a really complex and rich and kind of disturbing time. Mm -hmm. Now, you kind of alluded to this, but uh, I'm wondering what, what is the purpose in terms of, you know, why is this necessary today for, for, uh, for people to see that there were these inequalities then? How does that sort of, um, how is that relevant to, to 2011? Well, I think, it, I think it's really helpful. Um, you know, when we started thinking about this piece, it was two years ago, and it was a major election year. Mm -hmm. Um, for us, and I think there was a lot of kind of political activation in, in our culture, and there was a lot of hope, there was a lot of anticipation that there might be big changes. And, and sometimes when there is that, that extra focus, um, you start to realize anew um, that, you know, that we kind of tolerate uh, 
a lot more injustice than we probably sh- than we should than mm-hmm. we should. Um, and and it's it's a phenomenon that I I think of as um, I kind of refer to it as cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, that's not a term I made up, obviously, but, but, but we get we get used to these um, the inequities, the, the the dissonance of living in a culture that that isn't what it purports to be all the time. And um, so I think that you know, for example, marriage equality was a was a big issue a couple of years ago when we started to work on this piece. Healthcare is it's, it's still a big issue. Um, so I, I find it's been very helpful. It's been helpful for me as an artist and for the, for the group of people that I've been working with to w- go back and look at the roots of, of how our country was founded and, and what was really going on for the average person then or, or try to get at that a little bit. And I think, it's, I think it's reflective. I think it helps us understand perhaps why we're still struggling with with inequity and social mm-hmm. injustice in the, ways, in the ways that we are. Mm-hmm. And that's Dana Hansen telling us about Gloria's Cause. And that will be coming to the Push Festival January 26th and 27th at 8pm to Performance Works on Granville Island. And tickets for that are $25, which, uh, again, you can get online at pushfestival.ca or get all the appropriate links at CITR. CA, which is also a great place to follow us on Twitter. Uh, there's a link from our blog uh, to that. And, uh, and you can also subscribe to our podcasts and get all of the arts coverage that you need, your weekly fix of arts coverage, into your iTunes or other format uh, inbox every week automatically. And uh, that's all available at www.citr.ca. Uh, next week, we're going to have even more uh, continuation of this parade of push. And we'll have interviews with uh, musician Veda Hilly, who's involved in, uh, it seems like, every single show in push. Uh, Veda has some sort of musical part in. Um, so she's quite an all-star, so we'll have an interview with her next week. We'll uh, cover a show called Rouge, which uh, I wanted to call a dance show before, but um, but uh, Julie, who we'll speak to next week, um, put me down and, and said, it's not it's not dance, it's so much bigger than dance. It's, it's, uh, it's movement. It's sort of visual art. It's it's theater. It's it's everything. But uh, we'll have an interview on that and uh, Peter Panties as well. A sort of uh, interesting dark uh, spin on Peter Pan and um, can I say Mac- Macbeth? I don't know. Is this count as a theater? No, it's a it's a radio studio. I can say it here. The Scottish play, anyway. So lots more uh, push coverage uh, next week. That's all for the push coverage on this week's show, but we still have lots more to cover, including an interview with uh, the Wizards and uh, Wawate Fobister. Ah, see, I thought I'd mispronounce his first name, and then I end up mispronouncing Fobister after all that effort. Make sure you say Wawate. Ah, see, it's just, you know, it's hard life. Anyway, but first, um, we're going to talk arts funding. In, uh, in August 2009, $20 million was cut from BC Gaming, money that funded everything from sports programs to parent advisory councils and, yes, arts organizations, both big and small in BC. A year and a half later, where do we stand? Arts Report correspondent 
Nick Sartori put together this report featuring NDP arts critics Spencer Chandra Herbert and Amir Ali Alibai, the executive director of the Alliance for Arts and Culture. And Nick started by asking him about the role the Alliance plays in advocating for the arts in BC. And that interview will start in mere seconds, so bear with us. Organization as well, and you know the alliance is comprised of members, increasingly so, not just from the arts, but also people who support the arts. And um, so uh, we we have uh, over 350 organizations that are members um, from all disciplines, and uh, including festivals, uh, you know, small organizations, individuals, and organizations like the opera and the arts club are also members. Um, and in terms of advocacy, you know, it, the, the community has sort of come together in the last two years, um, given the, t the cuts, and this community is talking, you know, we're, we've kind of become a network of networks. So I find that um, um, uh, the Alliance is now in contact and in communication with organizations around the province. And so that mandate, uh, which is initially about Greater Vancouver, seems to have been, in terms of advocacy at least, expanded. I continued my conversation with MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert. Spencer is the representative for Vancouver West Side and is a member of the official opposition, that's the BCNDP. He also has an important role as official opposition arts critic. I wanted to ask him about a comment that he made back in August 2009 when those cuts were first announced. CBC reported him as saying that the BC Liberal government was, quote, stealing from charities. So I wanted to get a little bit of clarification on that. Well, the government had committed to charities back in 99 that any money, well, 30% of dollars that came in through gambling profits uh, would go to charities, so arts and culture, environmental groups, etc. Government decided to take that money away, um, put it back into general revenue. Uh, so they absolutely broke the agreement with charities and uh, took their money. Um, this was money that was dedicated for charities and it should have gone there and it should still go there. And can you enlighten us a bit to where that money comes from? Because I think um, a lot of folks are confused as to where that where that money actually actually comes from. Well, it comes out of gambling profits. So uh, casinos, uh, lottery tickets, etc. Uh, that money, um, it was originally supposed to be 30%. Uh, it's trended around 10%. But unfortunately now, uh, even though gambling profits have grown hundreds of millions, uh, there's less money going to charities uh, than there was back in the 90s when the NDP were in power. Uh, so that's pretty shocking given uh, the huge growth in gambling profits. Absolutely. And since that initial um, cut, the announcement of the cuts in August of 2009, what have you heard, what are, what are some of the main points that you've heard from arts organizations? Um, what are some of the ways that they've been affected by those initial cuts to the gaming program specifically? Uh, well, we've seen arts groups uh, cancel key programs, uh, so stop uh, performances, um, stop gallery showings, uh, museums uh, shut their doors. Uh, we've seen companies close, uh, people laid off, uh, groups go uh, massively into debt because in the election, uh, the Liberals ran and told people, uh, the Minister for Culture told the arts groups right before, don't worry, everything's fine, um, the money will be there. Of course, right after the election, uh, they introduced a budget which uh, slashed funds 50% with a threat to cut them 90%. Uh, the worst cut starts in culture in BC history. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the BC Liberals' record. So we're, groups are really struggling right now, and I think we 
uh, have a long way to go in terms of helping them get out of the, the mess that government created for them. Uh, because nonprofits are uh, they're volunteers often, um, small groups, uh, uh, not huge budgets, um, and they, uh, they, like any other group, have to plan in advance. But it's pretty difficult to plan when you're told, oh, yes, the money will be there. You can apply for the funds, and uh, uh, you'll likely get them if you've got a good program and, and you've got to you know, raise money elsewhere. Um, and then have the money not be there halfway through uh, a fiscal year. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you plan for that? You can't. Mm -hmm. um, and then how do you plan for the future when government is in turmoil and you don't know if they're coming or going. Yeah, and that's interesting. Can you comment some more about that sort of back and forth? Because um, the sort of the gaming deadline, I guess, was in May of 2009, and then the governments froze froze the funds and then released the funds, said they were going to cut all the gaming, then reinstated the third-year funding, and sort of went back and forth a few times, and those were just a couple of examples. How do you feel about that, and how did that affect arts groups from your experience talking to arts groups? Well. When government acts in such a way where you don't know what they're doing, uh, they say one thing, do another, and then do another thing and say another thing, uh, how do you plan? Uh, it, incredible uncertainty uh, leads to poor decision making because you can't plan. Um, and groups want to be able to plan uh, into the future. Uh, so if you've got to fundraise, uh, you need to be able to do that. Uh, you can't uh, tell a group, here, we're going to give you the money, sign paperwork, um, the, the check still hasn't arrived yet. The group has to uh, put your logo, the best place on earth on all their programs, invite the minister to come say some words at an event, and then afterwards uh, pull the funding. Um, incredibly disrespectful, uh, arrogant, um, and uh, really bad economically and, and socially. It's just not the right thing to do. Um, so I think I would prefer if government actually treated these uh, nonprofit charities with respect and said, okay, you're volunteers, uh, largely, you're doing incredible work for our community. Um, that was what a multi-year funding agreement was about, so that they could plan in advance, so that they could go and get uh, a sponsor uh, and say, look, we, we're, we, we get a small amount of government funding, uh, we reach out to you to raise the rest, um, and then there you go. Uh, but instead, government's gone down the path of chaos. Um, without any clear plan or strategy for the future. Mm -hmm. Yet other governments, Ontario I think of, um, has actually increased its investments in the arts with the argument, uh, quite rightly, that it's good for the economy, it grows jobs, and in the middle of a recession, that's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, Alberta, others, you know, have, act, have, have taken these steps. Um, uh, and we need to. Uh, we're, we're not out of uh, tough economic times yet. Um, yet the arts, we actually know um, actually can increase um, dollars coming to uh, government. Mm -hmm. um, the BC Arts Council government's uh, uh, own study sh showed that for every dollar invested, they get up to a dollar thirty-six back in taxes. So that's an economic return. Uh, that's not even mentioning the social return of people getting to know their community, getting to know each other, uh, being challenged, asked to question, uh, and being creative, um, which BC needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, given that we're a largely resource-based economy still, uh, we need to focus, I, I believe, on creativity and knowledge uh, if we ever want to get past the boom and bust cycle that we've had uh, in our economy for so long. So let's fast forward now, and here we are in the present. It's January 2011. We're in a unique position in BC because three of our major parties are all in leadership races right now. The BC Liberal Party, the BC New Democrat Party, and the BC Conservative Party. 
So I wanted to ask both Amir and Spencer if they had any thoughts about how the leadership races would affect arts and culture moving forward. Well, b before we actually put out our position paper, uh, George Abbott did come out and speak about restoring arts funding and taking the recommendation of the Standing Committee on Finance to 2008-9 levels. And uh, uh, no one's really wanted to touch the gambling money and revenues uh, thus far, although Christy Clark did come out and say that she would uh, restore uh, $15 million to the, the funding that uh, goes out to charities and not-for-profits. So that's a start. Um, I also, you know, have heard uh, a position from Kevin Falcon about his suggestion to separate the arts completely out of uh, um, uh, revenues from g gambling and to stand them on their own. I don't really trust that approach. I think it's more of the divide and conquer type of thing that we've seen happen already. You may know that uh, in terms of the gambling revenues, the arts were the first uh, um, sector to, to be affected. Uh, we were the canary in the coal mine, as it were. And, uh, and you know, that's often the case because, um, particularly from the cap that would think that way, the arts are seen as a frill and not essential. Well, the commitment we've made to arts and culture communities, uh, to people who care about the arts in BC, uh, is one that we made in our last election platform, and that was to increase investments in arts and culture, create a capital fund for arts and culture so that museums, theaters, etc., could actually uh, help improve, renovate, create um, uh, new facilities, um, because the, there is no capital program under the BC Liberals. But we're last place. We need to do better than that. Um, I'd love it if we could get to the national average. Um, that'll take some time, uh, because we are so far back. Um, but we're missing huge opportunities, and um, my colleagues uh, support that call. Uh, and um, how we get there and exactly what the budget numbers are, um, I can't say at this point because, well, we're still in flux. Um, I'm concerned that uh, because we're into this leadership uh, uh, race of the Liberals, NDP, etc., uh, that the government's going to present what they will call a status quo budget, but will it, which will actually be a budget with less money to arts and culture than we had two, three years ago. So we'll continue in this uh, vein of less money for arts and culture from this government. And that was uh, Nick Sartori's report on the arts funding situation in BC. Thanks to Nick for that. We're going to take a short break. And uh, when we come back, we'll tell you about Dead Man's Cell Phone. And we'll also um, give you a preview of tomorrow's um, 30 Live show at the Forum, which will feature the Wizards uh, with a Z. UBC's Museum of Anthropology displays long-term and visiting exhibits of indigenous art from around the world. And guided tours are free. Our permanent collection features one of the world's finest exhibits of Northwest Coast First Nations art. Our collection includes 36,000 ethnographic pieces, 535,000 archaeological pieces, and over 600 pieces in the Kroner Ceramics Gallery. There's a lot to take in. Luckily at the Museum of Anthropology, final exams are always take home. If you've never checked out this world-class facility, now's your chance. The Museum of Anthropology is located right on campus and free for all UBC students and faculty. Come enjoy our collection and resources. And you're listening to The Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver and streaming online at citr.ca and in podcast form on our website, also on 
on CITR.ca, which is our website, which is CITR.ca, blah, blah, blah. Um, all right. This show is, uh, is sponsored by the Arts Undergraduate Society. You can find them on Facebook and on Twitter. It's facebook.com slash UBCAUS and twitter.com slash UBCAUS. All right. First Nations cultures have this concept of two spirits, when a person has a masculine and a feminine soul simultaneously. Agukwe, the title of the one-man show now showing at uh, The Cult, refers to this concept. The show is about two teen boys, a hockey player and a dancer, who fall in love through their mutual love of movement. Actor Wawate Fobister plays six different parts in this show, and we caught up with him before his performance tonight for an interview. Here he is explaining the meaning of agukwe. Like native languages, they have, like across because there's like 600 different languages like mm-hmm. in in North America, right? Uh, of native languages, and each language has like their own term for it. And for the Anishinaabe, it was agukwe, and basically two spirited, like just because they wanted to make um, a term to um, so that everyone can relate to in an English way, so they just use two spirited. So. And the way they described um, the Agukwe was, I mean, a, um, a two-spirit person was, and, and the elders did was Agukwe, which means wise woman, because um, a person with two spirits, they were more connected to the, the greater spirit in the spirit world, so mm-hmm. that's why they were, that's why they called them wise women. And in our modern uh, equivalent, I guess, would be would be gay, right? Um, yes, but. Uh, not y- all yes and no. People. Yes and no, because not all two-spirited people are gay. Okay. Uh, so, but a lot of them are. But n- it doesn't necessarily mean that you are gay if you're two-spirited. And I'm wondering, you know, what kind of uh, cultural significance that has, because I'm guessing that in in native cultures, it's more it's more accepted or it's more a sort of uh, a part of the community to have that role of, of two spirits than, than the term gay does in, in today's society. Would you agree? Um, yeah, well, it was, it, a lot of it has been lost because of um, colonization and um, what we lost, we're, we're losing our language, our culture, our traditions. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it's been lost, so it's, a lot of it right now is just regaining everything back. So. That's why I do this play because it's important. I'm bringing, I'm trying to bring that, I bring this um, belief and tradition back into our culture, and I'm trying to bring back my language too. And so it's just trying to bring back everything because a lot of it's been lost through the through the colonization. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's get back to to the show. It's a it's a love story between a hockey player and a dancer. Now, is hockey and dancing? Uh, as different as it might seem at uh, first glance? Because at first glance, it seems like two opposite things. Um, well, in Native culture, there's, um, because he's a powwow dancer, and all the, like a lot of Native people like to do powwows, right? Mm-hmm. So it, and then there's hockey tournaments. So a lot of the people that go to hockey tournaments also go to powwows. And so, and a lot of powwow people go to hockey tournaments. So it's like there are two big events that happen in Native culture in my area. Oh, okay. So they're big social events that happen where lots of young people go. Well, all people of, of all ages go. That's where the Native people go and enjoy, have fun, and, you know. So that's what we all that's what we are like all doing powwow and hockey and bingo. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't put bingo in the play. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess you couldn't fit everything in, right? Yeah. And um, 
And, and if there's one sort of central message or one sort of uh, idea that you want to communicate to your audience about the show, what would that be? Um, for everyone to try to understand each other and love each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah. Hmm. And now this is a this is a one man show, right? And yes. I'm always stunned by people who do uh, one man or one woman one woman shows, and and uh, it, it just seems like an incredible amount of work and an incredible exertion to play so many different people and not have an opportunity to just walk off the stage the way that you know you can if if there's more you know a, a bigger cast. Um, I wonder what's the biggest challenge? What, ha what has been the biggest challenge uh, for you in, in playing all these multiple ro roles? Um, well, yes, it is, it is really challenging. It is, um, it's like I'm running a marathon because mm -hmm. it, I'm, I'm seeing all these words and going jumping to characters, characters. So it's, it is actually really tiring. So um, you've got to have a lot of stamina and endurance to do this show. And that's what I'm like trying to build up because I haven't done it for a while. So that's, right now that's the biggest challenge for me is like, Ooh, like trying to get into the stamina of the whole entire show because it's a big one and yeah. it is it takes a toll on a person I like I'm right now I just have to relax all day till till tonight I'm just taking a chill and I can't do anything rigorous today and just I just got to chill out can you, can you give us a few examples of, of the different people that you play well I play six different characters um, uh, three of them are female, two of them are male, and one is genderless. Uh -huh. And um, there's uh, the two boys, the and then there's the two cousins. One's a really um, kind of uh, bitchy kind of character, and the other one's a really shy one. Uh, the cousins are the, the two boys, and then there's the mother, who's the mother of the hockey player, who's she's a she's um, a recovering alcoholic. She's um, a trapper and she's also a hockey mom mm -hmm. and she just adores her son and then there's Nana Bush the trickster and he's oh yeah Nana Bush he's a trickster he does he likes to get he's really mischievous and and he likes to get into trouble <laughs> all right and that was Wawate Fobister who is presenting Agukwe at the Kulch the historic theater at the Kulch and that's playing until January the 22nd at 8 p.m. And uh, tickets are $28, and you can get them at theculch.com. I think it's com or .ca. Or you can just go to our website, uh, citr.ca, where we have links to uh, this show and every other show that we featured on the Arts Report today. So if you've missed any of the, the segments earlier in the program, you can find out what you missed and what will be available in the podcast in, uh, in about an hour or two hours from now. You can get the, the whole show in podcast form. So we're going to take one more break, and uh, when we return, we'll talk about Dead Man's cell phone, and then at the end of the show, we'll have the interview with the Wizards. So stay with us. At Dunkin' Donuts, each and every radio show is brewed fresh and served fresh at the peak of its flavor. If you're a tough customer, only the taste of this radio show will do. So go ahead, let Dunkin' Donuts make your radio experience exquisite. Indeed. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, serving sweet treats from the pop underground. Thursdays, noon to one. UBC Theatre's production of Dead Man's Cell Phone opens tomorrow, Thursday, January the 20th, and the lead in the show, Titch Wilson, came to CITR earlier today to tell us all about the show.
Well, the story begins, um, it's a story about this woman named Jean, who I play, and she is a very quiet, very insular, um, lonely person. She keeps to herself. Um, and the story begins, she's at a cafe writing a thank you note, and the man at the table next to her, his cell phone goes off, mm -hmm. and it keeps ringing, and he won't pick up no matter how many times the person calls back. And eventually she gets so frustrated, she goes over and she answers the phone for him. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that he's actually died there at the cafe. So he's a, he's a dead man. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's why he wasn't picking up his phone, because uh -huh. he was dead. Um, and she decides to fall in love with him and uh, keep his phone. And then, and then she sort of goes on a sort of magical journey with this phone? Yeah, kind of a crazy... Um, absurdist journey. She meets all the people in his life um, and through them gets to know him. Mm -hmm. um, she meets his mother, his mistress, his widow, his brother, um, and they're all really crazy characters, mm -hmm. really kooky. Um, Is this a, a comedy? It's a black comedy, mm -hmm. definitely. It's It's got some weird, dark undertones but it's a very funny show too mm -hmm. um yeah and what's been um for you and and your character what's been the biggest challenge or the biggest uh, obstacle to sort of uh, do it justice the biggest challenge was well it's a it's a big role. I'm on stage for the whole time, so it requires right. a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. um, keeping that energy up, but keeping the honesty to it. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a very weird script. Yeah. And I think everybody in the cast has kind of found like we have to keep it crazy and mm -hmm. be true to that zaniness, but also keep it honest. I think that's right. And, and I can see that because if you've got material that's that is so zany mm -hmm. you don't want to sort of go off the rails right you do want to keep a certain humanity is that is that it exactly exactly yeah. because <laughs> if it's not human then then people won't be able to connect to it mm -hmm. right and um what is the sort of core message or what's what's it uh, at its root what is it about uh, at its root i would say the play is about love and about how all anyone really wants in this world is love and to find that connection and the importance that, of uh, hanging on to it once you found it. And uh, will people walk out of the theater uh, with a different perspective on their own uh, beeping digital devices, you think? I definitely think <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and that's Titch Wilson telling us about Dead Man's cell phone. It's interesting that she says that her character decides to fall in love. I mean, surely love decides for you, does it not? But... Uh, but that's interesting. You'll have to see the show and see how, how she decides to fall in love. Now, this show is opening uh, tomorrow, January 20th, and runs until the 29th at 7.30 p.m. at the TELUS Studio Theatre uh, here in the UBC campus. The TELUS Studio Theatre is located in the Chan Center, in case you're wondering. And tickets range from $12 to $22. And you can get that from the UBC Theatre box office or from their website, and, uh, and, of course, you can go to citr.ca to get all the info on that. All right. So, local band The Wizards delight audiences by performing in full wizard regalia, complete with beards, robes, and a dragon.
They're bringing their fantastical musical experience to the Forum Sports Bar on Granville Street tomorrow night as part of 30 Live, the local music showcase. I spoke to Granmar, the wizard, about the band, their influences, and their arch nemesis, Donny Osmond. All right, so um, I'm, I'm speaking to uh, Granmar from uh, the Wizards. Uh, hello, Granmar. Hello there, mortal. <laughs> so um, I understand that um, your band came together uh, because there was a, a need. There was a, there was a severe lack of Wizards in the music scene. And I wonder if you could elaborate on, on um, the consequences of this, this uh, Wizard shortage. Well, we realize there's quite a limited amount of fantasy in the electronica world and it was our duty sent here by Merlin to cast our spells upon the crowds through our musical enticement. Yes, and, and is it true then that you do cast spells through your music, I mean, you, you, which I w would like to describe as a whimsical electronica, if I may. Um, do you, um, are there uh, spells sort of uh, embedded in your, in your music? Yes, of course. It's quite complex. Uh, you simple mortals probably wouldn't understand, but uh, it involves you dancing and us playing music. Is it, wow. It seems extraordinarily simple, and yet you say that it's, it's very complex. Too complex for a mortal like me to understand? There's, there's many layers. Quite, <laughs> it's a long story, really. There's a dragon involved and all sorts of unicorns. It's... <laughs> okay. Um, I wonder uh, who is your greatest nemesis? Uh, what is the greatest nemesis of the wizards? We have many enemies during our journeys here in the mortal world. Um, the greatest being Donny Osmond. Uh, <laughs> he is the most, well, he's the greatest Wiccan in all the West. Wow, I had, I had no idea that he was a, a force of, of evil. Oh, yes, yes. Wow, I'm stunned. And um, what, are, what are the influences for, uh, for the wizards? Well, mostly fairies, dragons. Uh, dragon brew, uh, mead, uh, well, some Viking lore, uh, and uh, generally electronica dance, disco rock. Wow. Well. Mm hmm. And um, I'm just wondering what uh, what do you do, do you sing, or is it mostly uh, non-verbal? If I can say that. Well, we focus mainly on instrumentation, but also we have a vocoder as mortals would call it and uh, it allows you to speak in normal tongue and have it sing upon the crowd in a keyboard style wow how many tongues do you speak grandma um pretty much all of them <laughs> all of them all of the tongues in the world oh yes yes it's um i mean not right now i have a cold but uh on a good day excellent and um now you've been known to um appear in um in, in concert um, in full wizard regalia. Should we expect that at tomorrow's uh, 30 Live show? Oh, of course. That is our ceremonial garb. It's uh, required for us to uh, cast our spells. We have many lights, and those are our uh, charms that are being activated as we play. And should anyone be worried for their safety? Um, perhaps a little, but, um, you know, that's as usual in our wizard shows, uh, there is a dragon, I will warn you. Oh, no. Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's large. Uh, it scares many people, but uh, <laughs> it's generally quite nice unless it's been drinking heavily. Now, I understand that uh, there is a new uh, wizard joining your band. Is that true? Yes, this is true. His, his name is Sega Genesis. He is 
from the nether realm and uh, he will be joining us on a variety of instruments essentially we have rewritten majority of our music oh really yes we've added uh, more layers of percussion um more guitars more bass more awesome it's it's pretty good excellent is there anything else you wanted to, to mention um, we shall be recording a, another record soon that is in the works, and that is where all our magic is going to be cast in the next few months, I believe. So that is a very exciting time for us. And that was Grandmar, the wizard, who also sometimes goes by the name of Bryce Dundon. Um, other, other wizards in the band include, as you heard, uh, Segar Genesis, as well as Fior Bear of the Forest, um, also including Nintendo Wheeze and Voltus called Lord Eldermort. <laughs> All right, and uh, the Wizards will be playing tomorrow, uh, January the 20th, at uh, around 9 p.m., and that's uh, part of 30 Live, which is Vancouver's newest live music series celebrating unsigned local acts, and that's on Granville at around Helmkin on the Granville Strip, and I think doors at 8.30, and, uh, and then the bands uh, go on after that. Uh, tickets are $10, and they can be purchased at the door. Well... Uh, I warned at the top of the show that we would not make it time-wise, and uh, perhaps because I stated that, we have, in fact, made it on time. It's not even 6 o'clock, and we've gone through a slew of content. If you've missed any of it, it will be available in podcast in a podcast in uh, a mere matter of hours. I feel like a wizard now. In a mere matter of hours, the podcast technology shall be blessed upon this earth. Um, yeah, so that'll be available if you've missed any of our push coverage. We had lots of push coverage last week. Uh, you should check out the Push Festival. It's running until the first week of February. Uh, and there's really great, uh, sort of on the edge, I want to say, groundbreaking avant-garde kind of um, performances. <clears throat> Excuse me, across all genres. <clears throat> Excuse me again. <laughs> can't keep it together. Uh, we clearly need to end the show soon. But uh, what I'm saying is it's all kind of shows, not, not just theater, uh, not just dance, uh, not just music, but, uh, you know, uh, mixes, blended mixes of all three and um, from Vancouver and from all over the world. So definitely uh, check that out. You can get more information on the PUSH website, pushfestival.ca. Uh, the Georgia Strait also has a PUSH Festival sort of pull-out feature, and there's lots of information on shows there. So uh, I'll be going to a PUSH show tonight, La Marea, uh, which is uh, a wonderful production that's going to take over, that takes over an entire block of uh, Water Street in Gastown. So if you're there uh, tonight, uh, then if you're in that area, walk over and you'll see uh, live theater taking place right in front of your eyes. All right, so uh, that's that's all for me. We'll be back next week here on The Arts Report. I'm Adam Janusz, and we're going to leave you uh, with a few minutes of dwarf punk from The Wizards. Uh, uh.